0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision making. We're a group of value investors working together on the Global Value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The Value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy.
1: Hi everyone! On this episode, we welcome Robert Bryce to the pod. Robert is prolific across the media, so you may know him from a couple of different places, including as the author of the book, A Question of Power, Electricity, and the Wealth of Nations, as the host of the Power Hungry podcast, if you're American, you might have seen his documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World, or you may have even caught one of his columns in Forbes, The New York Times, Washington Post, or Wall Street Journal. Now, for this podcast, Juan and Andrew Lydon sat down with Robert to discuss some second degree consequences coming from the current climate change push, the potentially unfair demonization of fossil fuels, how land constraints can also constrain renewable resources, why PR for nuclear needs a turnaround, and finally, some future visions of what an energy grid could look like if it responded to weather patterns. Enjoy.
2: Robert Bryce, welcome to the BioPerspective podcast is a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm fine.
1: Thank you, Juan. Thanks for inviting me. Where do we find you today? I'm at home in my uh, my office in Austin, Texas. Uh, I've lived here for uh, 37 years, so uh, almost used to the Texas heat. But man, it has been hot this summer. I mean, really hot. Over 100F <laughs> every every day for the last few weeks. It's been brutal. Yeah, well, that sounds crazy. Um, I have to say that We are always
2: very humble when we have as a guest, someone that hosts its own podcast. And so you have your own podcast, which I will allow you to introduce. You've written several books, including the uh, latest one, uh, A Question of Power, Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. You've written or you write columns for very different magazines, including uh, including Forbes uh, magazine. I think that Andrew and I feel like we are not doing enough with our 24 hours during the day.
1: <laughs> well, there has been plenty to write about lately. That is for certain. But yes, I, I love this stuff. I'm I'm uh, energy and power sectors are the world's most important businesses, and all the other businesses in the world depend on them. So I'm very fortunate to be able to write about it, and uh, you know, still learning, which is the the most remarkable part of it. Is just is such a big and complex. Industry that touches every other industry, the politics of it, the innovation. It's really an incredible business.
2: You give us a little bit of a brief summary and introduction about yourself and talk about your podcast and your latest book. And you, I forgot to mention, you also film a, a documentary
1: which we can find on Amazon Prime and Apple TV, correct me if I'm wrong, called Use What It's All, What It's That About. Sure. So, well, first things first. So, uh, my name is Robert Bryce. I live in Austin. I'm a dad. I, my wife, Lauren, and I have three great kids, Mary, Michael, and Jacob. They're uh, uh, all moved out of the house, which has been a great thing, too. Um, <laughs> but uh, Lauren and I are married 36 years, and uh, I've been very fortunate in my life. And so, those are the, 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 those are the most important things in my life. I'm also a, an author, a journalist, a podcaster, a film producer. Written six books. My first book was on Enron, published twenty years ago. Uh, my latest book, as you said, is called Juice. Uh, or, sorry, is a Question of Power: Electricity and the Wealth of Nations. I'm the host of the Power Hungry podcast, which is available wherever fine podcasts are sold. And also, uh, I'm the executive producer of a, a documentary that I that I produced at the same time I wrote my last book. The doc is called uh, Juice: How Electricity Explains the World. Unfortunately, we're, it's not available in Europe now, and I've been tussling with the distributor to try and get European uh, uh, distribution. But here in the U.S., it's available on all the major streaming platforms. So uh, you can also check that out. Uh, I'm all over the interweb. <laughs> you can find me there at uh, robertbrice.com. I'm on Twitter at PowerHungry, PWR Hungry. Uh, I could go on. And I'll stop there. How about that? <laughs> um, I'm a little bit interested in exploring what's the background and the topic of the documentary. Yeah, well, this is one of the strange things about the movie business which I, you know, had no experience with until I made this this documentary and I'm making another documentary, by the way, on the electric grid and, and the problems with the electric grid. But, you know, the, the book business is very clear. When you sign a contract, you, you have a publisher and they distribute the book, right? And they distribute it worldwide and they have worldwide rights with film distribution, it's just a different business. And I didn't understand that. And so we're seeking international distribution and we're gonna make it happen. Um, uh, but uh, I didn't realize how kind of balkanized the film distribution industry is relative to the book business. So, um, uh, y- you know, it's just live and, live and learn, but uh, I'm very proud of the film. If, uh, you know, any, anyone anywhere can look at our, our website, juicethemovie.com. Um, But uh, electricity is the world's most important and fastest growing form of energy. And we've seen that last year. I mean, the latest BP statistical review data is just remarkable. The, the growth in, in electricity generation last year was three times the 30-year average. It's just uh, electricity demand all over the world is just soaring. And that explains why we're seeing so much uh, uh, coal burn lately, which is, uh, to me, is another interesting trend and one that has not abated. I mean, the coal continues its share of the marketplace in the electric generation business and it has maintained it, not the whole sector, but still at over 35, 40% now for decades.
0: Afternoon, Robert, nice to, or afternoon here anyway. Nice, nice to speak with you. I guess over the last few years, and particularly for us as investors over 2020, 2021, this kind of narrative about energy transition had, had started to become more topical. And there'd been a particular set of assumptions, I think, about the backdrop against which that would happen. Uh, and people weren't too specific on the the mechanism, maybe, but they had a broad idea of where they wanted to get to and the world in which that would be done. The situation in Russia and Ukraine has obviously started to make a lot of those those assumptions about the way the world would be has turned them on this turned them on their head so just interested to get your thoughts about how you think that's changed the the equation for the for the energy transition
1: sure well I'll I'll uh, be cheeky here a little bit I think as you Brits would say but uh, energy transition what energy transition I mean what we're seeing now is a recarbonization not decarbonization in Europe in particular. Uh, but around the world. I've been looking at the data. What we're seeing is the long-term trend of the growth in hydrocarbons swamping any of the growth in renewables. I mean, that's just the numbers. There's no indication in the numbers that we're seeing an actual energy transition. Um, And that's a problem. Uh, But I think moreover, I mean, to your point, Andrew, the, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think, is an inflection point. It should be seen as an inflection point. And I think that that, it clearly will be because Europe made itself too reliant on Russian gas. Not only that, as I testified before the U.S. Senate last November, what else did they do? Too too dependent on imports. They spent too much on renewables, too little on hydrocarbons, and they closed their baseload coal and nuclear plants. All of these were just critical mistakes, and they made all of them. And so now what we see across Europe is, yeah, we can talk about ESG, we can talk about decarbonization, we can talk about climate. Climate is a concern. It's not the only concern. And so what we're seeing in Europe is, uh, countries all across the continent burning more coal, trying to bind, find whatever they can to burn because they are facing a very harsh winter if the, if Russia does cut off the gas. But they, they just made themselves completely vulnerable. And we saw that just in the last few days where <clears throat> Russia reduced the, the flow of gas into Europe by half. It was at 40 percent of capacity. Now it's 20 percent. And Russia can play this game for as long as they like. They seem to enjoy it but European consumers are not going to enjoy it and European consumers are going to get hurt very badly. um, I would like to pick up on something that I I think
2: that you've discussed in the past, which is there has been this very big push uh, into the renewable space for good reasons, climate change and all of that. But it seems like people haven't thought about the second or third degree consequences to society of what that might mean. Sure. Uh,
1: And so could you elaborate on what those consequences might be? Well, of course. And and that's the question of the moment, Juan, which is if we're facing climate change and, and it appears we are, and we're gonna see more extreme weather, hotter, colder, more extremes, longer extremes, it's the height of foolishness. It's nonsense on stilts to make our most important energy network, the electric grid dependent on the weather. And yet that's what exactly what Europe has done. You've seen in the last, and and, and even here in Texas, where you've seen where uh, during periods of weak wind, the power prices skyrocket. So you're seeing your power prices that are dependent on the weather. Now this is just the height of foolishness. We should be, the electric grid is our most important energy network. It's the network upon which all of our other critical networks depend. And now Europe has shown that by harness, or essentially hitching its wagon to weather dependent renewables is resulting in all this chaotic pricing schemes and more vulnerability to, to Russia. So it's just been a huge, huge blunder. But so that's it. just one quick observation. But the other fun you said, second or third order principles, what to me, this this mad headlong, and I think it is a mad headlong rush toward renewables because it's politically popular. The first order effect is, or the first order, first principle is, what? well, where are you going to put it? And you've seen it, you're in Europe, you're in Britain. The backlash from rural uh, Europeans against the encroachment of large scale wind turbines and large scale solar projects and high voltage transmission has been going on now for decades. It's the same in the United States. I've written about this over and over here. Now, we're at over 345 communities across the U.S. have rejected or restricted wind projects over the last 13 years. You can't build enough of these wind turbines and solar projects to meet demand. You just can't do it because rural, rural residents in both Europe and America are saying, we don't want this, this stuff in our neighborhood. Take your wind turbines and put it somewhere where the wind doesn't blow. You're not going to put it here. That's really interesting. And we do
2: have a specific question about something that you've said in the past, which is the importance of land in the context of renewables. But maybe before we go into that, it's quite clear that traditional fossil fuels are being to a certain extent demonized. And we tend to ignore all the benefits and gains that humanity has been able to achieve in terms of progress over the last 200 years, exactly because of fossil fuels. In your latest book, A Question of Power, Electricity, and The Wealth of Nations, you make a very interesting recount of the historical evolution of electricity and how it has helped societies to make progress. For the benefit of our listeners, can you give us a podcast summary on why fossil fuels have been and will continue to be so important?
1: Well, sure. And and the short answer, Juan, is that hydrocarbons, I I call them hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and natural gas. A lot of the, the, the people call them fossil fuels. The reason why hydrocarbons have continued to be so dominant now, here we are nearly 140 years after Edison uh, created the first central power plant on Pearl Street in lower Manhattan, is that they can provide the vast quantities of energy that the world demands at prices consumers can afford. That's it. There's no, it's just that simple. That, that coal, oil and natural gas, for, They have. There's, there are plenty of reasons to criticize the companies. There are plenty of reasons to criticize why we use them. But the reason we utilize them and the reason they continue their dominance, over 80% market share still globally, is that they can provide the energy services that we demand. So, and and the other part of this that I think is critical, Juan, and you mentioned this just in, in passing, but when you compare the land footprint of hydrocarbon production, it's tiny, particularly when you compare it to that of renewables. The power density of wind energy, I don't care where you put it, is one watt per square meter. Solar power, solar energy, rather, 10 watts per square meter. Uh, hydrocarbon production, natural gas drilling in some parts of the U.S. now, 2,000 watts per square meter. They're having the, they're, they're able to produce the same amounts of power as you see for, coming from a nuclear power plant. I mean, these are just remarkable power density numbers, and power density matters. And that's one of the other key reasons why hydrocarbons have been so dominant, and it also explains why I'm so pro-nuclear. If we're serious about decarbonization, we have to be serious about nuclear, and unfortunately, we're not.
2: I guess devil's advocates will say that the technology is not there for wind and solar, but will eventually be
1: there. Would you Would you agree with that? No, I don't. I, the, the, you know, the, these are not new technologies, Juan. I mean, these. You know, oh well, they're, they still need to innovate. Well, no. the The, the wind energy business is a mature industry. And yet they're still clamoring for subsidies here in the U.S. They think, you know, it's good that Joe Manchin vetoed this, this bill that was pending a few weeks ago to extend those uh, ex, uh, uh, those uh, tax credits. But the reality is that the wind industry is reaching the, the physical limits of what the amount of energy that they can harness from the wind. It's called the Betts limit. And there's just a physical limit in in, uh, in it's not thermodynamics, it's uh, aerodynamics, I guess, or fluid mechanics, where the, you can only make the turbine a, a certain make it a certain amount of efficiency, and then no more. And the only option they have is to make their turbines bigger. Well, the bigger you make them, the more people see them. The more people see them, the more people will object. And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing it, in just in uh, over the weekend, I published a piece in Forbes about Madison County, Iowa, famous for the bridges of Madison County. They were, the MidAmerican Energy, the subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway sued the county to force the county to take wind turbines they didn't want. That's how unpopular wind turbines have become in rural America. And, and the, the local residents were happy over the weekend because MidAmerican said, oh, we're, we're not gonna expand. We're, we we're canceled the project. The locals were thrilled, but we're seeing the same thing with solar. And that is this physical limit. It's a matter of phys- math and physics. It's not a matter of want to. These, 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 these sources of energy, they have their merits, but their power density is just too low. And it's quite interesting that
2: we had Meredith and when here on the podcast, and oh, she's big, the big, author.
1: Big fan of Meredith. I've had her on my <laughs> podcast four times. She's fantastic. She is fantastic. Both Andrew and I uh, were co-hosts on that episode, and she
2: is the author of Shorting the Grid. And she, would, in that book, she mentions uh, this anecdote about Warren Buffett, where he... Explain. I think it was to a room of students that the only reason for anyone to go into the wind generation business was because
1: of government subsidies. Yes, that's exactly right. He said they said that it was in two thousand and fourteen. I've used that quote many times. And what you see, uh, his subsidiary Mid American, which is a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway they have been ruthless in their pursuit of tax credits including being as ruthless as to sue madison county to force the county to take wind turbines they don't want but also the des moines register i pointed this house uh, this out in my piece i ran in real clear energy the last few days in 2018 the des moines register pointed out that mid-american had spent 12 billion roughly 12 billion dollars in iowa on wind projects they're going to get 10 billion dollars in tax credits now where can you get a, i mean you guys are business guys what other industry can you do where where else can you go and you get five, five-sixths of your capital provided by the government i mean this is not this has nothing to do with climate change this is about subsidy mining and that's what it is and so you know, I'll quote someone else from Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger. He said, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Well, the in- the incentive was collect tax credits and that's what Buffett's company did. I mean, you know, it's that simple.
0: Just while we're on the subject of some of the kind of local impacts of the renewable energy, you've written, you don't see it written about very often, but I've read it from your own writing and also from people like Michael Schellenberger and, and so on, but the the kind of localized environmental impacts of green energy, which sounds like a bit of a paradox, but there are actually some quite important things in there. It'd be interesting if you could, could set them out for us.
1: Well, of course. And to be clear, I'm, you know, I've you i been reporting on the backlash against the wind industry in particular for, the, for a dozen years. I mean, I, it wasn't a story I went looking for, but in 2010, as I was finishing my fourth book, Power Hungry, I got contacted by a, a, a horse trainer in Missouri who said, you want to write about the wind business, write about his my deal. And his name was uh, a Charlie Porter. And he had had wind turbines built near his home. He couldn't sleep at night. His television reception was bad. He was interrupted by the noise. Since then, Andrew, I've talked to people all over the world. I've interviewed them myself. And many of these people have moved out of their homes this this problem with noise from wind turbines is well established and this hand waving this oh those complainers the and the way the wind industry has gotten away with this i think is just criminal i mean just criminal the way they they dismiss the complaints of rural residents who are have have had these giant machines put near their homes and they're suffering because of the noise pollution created by these wind turbines And it's real. This has been documented over and over by researchers all over the world, including in 2009 by the Minnesota Department of Health. I mentioned Madison County, Iowa. In 2019, the Madison County Board of Health declared wind turbines a public health hazard and recommended one and a half mile setback. So these are significant health issues. And the industry, this so-called green energy, the way they have been uh, able to escape culpability and the silence of the big media outlets on this I think is just execrable I I just it, it really makes me mad because I think it's been so irresponsible and they've they've latched onto this green label when in fact they're creating noise pollution and lots of it and you look at Falmouth Massachusetts where they're taking down wind turbines because of local complaints I mean this is not I, I could go on I'll stop there Andrew but it's a it's a sore subject with me because of the way the industry has acted here and in a totally irresponsible way
0: I'll, I'll let you stop talking about that, but then allow you to start talking about something very, very similar, <laughs> which is um, some of the, the similar problems with with solar panels and so on that have yet to be resolved or even any kind of plan put in place to think about resolving. If you could perhaps talk sure. about that just, just a little bit.
1: Sure, well, I think this is another example of and <clears throat> what Dustin Mulvaney, who's at San Jose State University, calls the green halo around renewables and, uh, or Jesse Ausubel from Rockefeller University has a great line. He says, wind and solar may be renewable, they are not green. And what is increasingly clear when it comes to solar, and I've been uh, been pro-solar for a long time. I have eight and a half kilowatts of solar panels on the roof of my home here in Austin. So I understand the attraction of solar. But what is the reality? Well, that we're facing a wave of solar trash, and this was documented by a, a report that was published by the Harvard Business School, that in, in the next 30 years or so, the volume of waste solar panels may equal or exceed the volume of the new panels being manufactured. Well, where are we gonna put all this trash? I mean, this is the other part of the life cycle that no one talks about. It's similar with lithium ion batteries, which really are cannot be recycled at scale. So there is a tail effect of these technologies that is not being discussed. And so this green halo needs to go away. Uh, but I'll add one other point to your, you know, because it's an excellent question. And it's one that I've written about it as well as, what about Chinese slave labor that's involved in the production of polysilicon? Remember it was just about a year ago that the U.S. government said that the Chinese government is practicing genocide, that's their word, genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority in Xinjiang province. And that same report said that 70% of the world's polysilicon for solar comes from Xinjiang province. And 40 percent comes from, uh, 70% comes from Xinjiang province. And some of that percentage is produced with slave labor. So, you know, it's not just hyperbole to say, well, how much slave labor, how much genocide is it okay for you to have in your solar panels and still call this technology green? I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that that's what we're seeing uh, with the solar business. The green halo is coming off.
0: Um, we've talked with various people on the podcast before about the, the link between you know energy and development in, in you know, third world and, and developing countries. Um, you very specifically tie it back to, and, and Juan alluded to it earlier, the, the importance of electricity specifically to those sure. things. So just wondering if you could take, give us some thoughts on less so perhaps the, the fossil fuel impact, but the, the direct <laughs> importance of electricity to the developing world.
1: Sure. Well, it, it, to me, as I think about electricity and what it means, well, it, it is most meaningful to women and girls. Because as I wrote in my book, and I, uh, and, and I would say in the film, electricity frees women and girls from the pump, the stove and the washtub that for millennia, women and girls have been effectively slaves to household labor, right? It, whether it's hauling water or washing clothes by hand um, or cooking over a wood stove or a, a stove uh, f- fueled with rice straw or, or or twigs or something else. I saw this myself. I saw it in India and I'm not an expert on India, but I've been there once and I've seen the absolute dire poverty that's, that billions of people around the world are living in and they're depending on traditional biomass to cook dinner. I mean as, you know, someone grow, who grew up, you know, in a middle-class home in, in America, in Oklahoma. I mean, the idea of my mother doing something like that was unfathomable to me, or, or relying on cow dung, which I saw myself again in India, where women collecting cow dung. I mean, just incredible to me that that was the level of poverty that, to, that these people were living in. So here are the numbers. There are 3.3 billion people roughly in the world today who use less electricity than average kitchen refrigerator here in the United, United States. I'll repeat it, 3.3 billion people, four out of 10 people on the planet today, live in areas where ca- per capita consumption of electricity is less than a thousand kilowatt hours per capita per year. I mean, this dire electricity poverty. This is the norm though around the world for billions of people. So the, the electricity is the most important energy form. It's the fastest growing form of energy. It, you know, people will do whatever they have to do. I coined the iron law of electricity. People, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need because it is so important to, to everything we do. Nearly everything we eat, read, touch, wear, has been some way or another been electrified. This is the most important form of energy and people aren't gonna do without it.
0: And so if those, uh, those 3.3 billion people are to aspire to have two fridges perhaps, or um, you know, to increase their, their electricity consumption you know, anywhere t- towards Western levels, how, how do we bridge that gap in terms of power generation?
1: Well, I've been for a dozen years talking about natural gas to nuclear, end to end. Uh, These are the forms of energy that with the technologies are mature. The technologies and the, the ability to produce the technologies is fairly widespread. Gas resources globally are enormous. I mean, just they're so big, we don't even really understand how big they are. There's a lot of stranded gas in the world. Africa has enormous gas resources. Um, but we have to drill for it. Um, nuclear, the technology is again, is very well established and it's both nuclear and natural gas. They're low carbon, they're lower, no carbon, they're scalable, they're relatively affordable. Um, and so I think these are the ways we have to think about uh, empowering the rest of the world and continuing to try and continue pursuing lower emissions. So it's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be cheap and it's not going to be fast, but, These are the technologies that I think are the the best no-regret strategy as we look at the future. I think one one of the things that you mentioned in your book is the fact that you can trade
2: all of the different commodities that make the fuel to generate electricity.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But trading electricity within countries, it's very difficult because it's very expensive to build the transmission lines and you lose a lot of power uh, when you are sending the electricity from one border to the other, which means that at the end of the day, it's up to each individual country to decide how to fix its own problem, which I guess creates a lot of issues for many emerging market countries in, in the world. And you drilled on the point that any electricity system, regardless of the fuel mix, needs to have the following four characteristics, cost feasibility, storage capabilities, scale, and land. Can you walk us through what these four variables mean why they are so important, what happened with them in the context of renewables, and most importantly, and this is something that you alluded to the, at the beginning of our conversation,
1: why is land its major weakness? Well, I'll start with the land issue first, because this is, <clears throat> you have to start with first principles. As my friend Lee Cordner, who's worked for California and the California Electric Grid for decades, said there are three issues you have to solve whenever you're building new infrastructure. Where are you going to put it? How are you going to connect it? And how are you going to pay for it? And so that where are you going to put it is critical. And we see this all over the world, regardless of what type of energy project you're talking about, whether it's drilling for oil or a nuclear plant or what you have to get acceptance from the local people in order to build it there and the fundamental problem with renewables is low power density which means they have a big big very big footprint and to increase their output they have to increase their footprint dramatically well as you increase the footprint the more people you're touching and that is a problem that's why we've seen all this conflict uh, both in Europe in Australia in Asia in the United States over the siting of these large renewable projects that you know they're they're politically popular particularly in the cities where there are a lot of liberals. I mean, it's the same in the US here. I mean, you know, a lot of Democrats and Democratic voters in the cities and they say they want renewables, but they're not the ones that are living with these projects. So um, that's the fundamental issue. And you, you just, and that's the problem, the basic problem with physics and math facing the renewable sector as it tries to grow. And I'll just give you a quick fact about Europe. About 10 years ago, the European platform against wind projects had about 400 members. Today it's over 1,600 so this backlash is not limited to the united states it's happening all over the world and um, i I think it's one of the other reasons why i think europe is facing such a dire situation europe has to start drilling the european countries and britain in particular you've got to get some drill rigs and some roughnecks and you need to get busy now because you cannot rely on other countries for this and and i'll just one last point on the in the issue of of electrification in individual countries Electric grids perfectly reflect the the societies they serve. And weak governments have weak electric grids. You know, if you're going to have a successful electric grid, the people who are served by that grid have to pay for it. You can't give away the electricity unless you're Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or something where you can, you know, there's enough money where you can subsidize it the grid has to pay for itself. There has to be this belief in the government. And if you don't have that, you have to have integrity, you have to have capital, and you have to have fuel. Those are the three things you have to have. But the integrity of the system is the most important one. And unfortunately, in a lot of developing countries, there's not a lot of integrity in the in the governmental systems. Why you're not alone. There are many different voices out there
2: voicing their concerns about how all of these policies are creating much weaker system, and we're seeing the consequences of that happening in Germany at the moment. So how come your voice and those other voices are being ignored?
1: Well, I hope they're not being ignored, Juan. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, this has been a tremendous waste of time uh, on my part, which I would would, uh, not be happy about at age 62 to think I've wasted my career. But I think the conversation is changing. I mean, I'll disagree with you that I think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an inflection point. You see Sweden and Finland joining NATO and in a very short amount of time, and you've seen a fairly unified Europe against this aggression from the Russians, which was foolhardy from the beginning, but, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. So I, I think that there is more rationality coming into the energy debate because it's being forced upon policymakers. They're being, some cases, dragged kicking and screaming into this. But you look at what happened in Sri Lanka, where here's a country with an almost perfect ESG score, and there's rioting in the streets. Why? Because of foolish, idiotic policies implemented by government officials. who are saying, "Oh, we're just going to decarbonize. We're not going to use fertilizer." Well, you idiot. You resulted in massive food shortages, and your people are hungry in the streets, and they're ransacking the palace because you you screwed the pooch, you ruined the system. We need hydrocarbons. We need energy. Energy means civilization. It provides. It is the catalyst. It, as Dunberg, the the analyst here in the U.S. says, energy is is life, and the absence of energy is death. And we're seeing these countries like Sri Lanka, and I to some extent Europe. I will say the same in Europe essentially cutting its own throat, but with bad policy, by ignoring the centrality, the essentiality of energy to, to civilization. And you, it's, no, we're not just gonna do with less. That's the wrong approach. We need more, and we need an abundance of energy, cheap, abundant, reliable, in that order. I guess I meant to question more in the sense
2: that, I mean, nuclear has been there for 70, 80 years now. And you all correct me if I'm wrong. It's incredibly difficult to start a new nuclear project in the U.S. Yeah. Germany shut down all of its nuclear capacity uh, over the last decade. And the U.S. is doing it right now. Are, there are many states which are shutting down nuclear, yeah. despite the fact that the people see what is happening and people that, are, that have the knowledge and have worked in the system or the sector have been telling them that, that, that the physics and the maths are going against them.
1: I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat any of this or you know I'm not Doctor Pangloss here. The, the nuclear sector faces some real challenges, but you're in UK in the UK. Sizewell C just got approved. I mean this is a big deal, right? Boris Johnson is out now, but before Boris, you know, uh, I'm gonna miss his hairdo. And before he resigned, he said we're gonna build a reactor a year. Rolls Royce is developing an SMR with a power density of 10,000 watts per square meter. Now whether that's a paper reactor or they're gonna make it real, I don't know. But eastern european countries are much more motivated on nuclear we've seen a i think a, a shift in the united states particularly in california where the governor of california gavin newsom said oh we're, maybe we should keep diablo canyon open well you think so governor it's eight percent of your electricity generation you might <clears throat> might think seriously about this before you shut it down so i think that we're seeing due to a number of factors including uh, the re- invasion of ukraine but also skyrocketing prices for coal coal in the newcastle marker is over 400 dollars a ton so we're seeing countries around the world, I think, taking another look at nuclear. And I think the public, then, they, particularly the younger generations, they're looking at nuclear in a way that my generation didn't. And they're looking at it as an essential part of the effort to reduce emissions and address climate change. Practicality eventually will win out. And we have to move past, I'll just add this, we have to move past and get the public to understand their misplaced fear of radiation. It's completely misplaced and wrong. And we need to get past that because there is no... Option for decarbonization at scale without nuclear—it's just clear, and it's been repeated over and over by the IEA, many other people. Um, that's just the reality. Uh, so. <laughs> well, let, well, let me ask the two of you then. I mean, what what is the sentiment in the UK now? What I mean, your your consumer bills are skyrocketing. You're seeing what, what was your feeling about the size well see approval? I'm, let's switch the tables. Act like it's my podcast. I mean, what, what do you see there? Because I'm interested. You're there. I'm not.
0: Personally, see the size well will see as very positive, and uh, it's almost to come back to what you said, as though the politicians have been kind of apolog- apologetically pushing the nuclear through mm. and trying to get it through under the radar. Whereas actually, you know, it, it, I think they, or at least some people, did understand the, the common sense that was behind getting it, getting it done, and there was a, a fleet of reactors, older reactors, that was about to become obsolete and also having built as much offshore wind as we have, which is right. a, a very large amount um, that you need, still need some base load. And if you want that to be green, it, it has to be nuclear, really. So I, uh, maybe this is too optimistic. I, I do think some people here get it, <laughs> they are making decisions. It's just that they don't want to shout about it too much.
1: Right, yeah. No, I think the practicality is, gonna, is going to, in the end, will win the day, uh, but it's going to, uh, it's gonna take a while. What did the Churchill say about the Americans? They always will do the right thing after they do all the the wrong things, or something to that effect, right? But uh, uh, since I'm in the, I have to work in a Churchill quote anyway, I'm talking to some guys in Britain, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, w- one of them is Colombian, so but like, like yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> well, you're in the UK, so yeah, exactly. The, but it's the, but it's the other line that Churchill, you know, the other great line that Churchill said about energy security. It's in variety and variety alone. So nuclear has to be part of that variety. You can't just say wind, you can't just say gas, you need a mixed portfolio. And I think that's the other reason why nuclear is gaining traction is because Europe bet too heavily on Russian gas.
2: Well, I guess the the other thing is people are very much aware of the mistakes that Germany has made over the course of the last 10 years and kind of looked across the border to France and the mistakes that they have not made, at least on their energy policy over the course of the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. Well, and the French, you know, they're having problem, problems with their reactors. Well, they didn't maintain them properly. So this is the other part of, you know, if we step back for just a minute and think about the philosophy of the civilization and what, you know, what are the critical infrastructure things in the society and whether, you know, we talk about, we've glanced on these ideas about renewables and what Amory Lovins coined the soft path that we're going to use renewables. And this is the soft path. Well, no, we need hard technology and we need hard, big, complex technologies like nuclear reactors like coal-fired power plants like big gas-fired power plants big machinery that is going to be incredibly resilient and weather resistant and those are the things on which we can build society and depend right we can't we've been brain we've been fooled i would say you know hoodwinked Um, deceived by this idea that we can do this soft path nonsense and, and make our systems dependent on the weather. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. We need big hardware, we need big technology, and we need to invest in it. And that's one of the problems we've been talking about is that, that government officials, that's not de rigueur, right? It's not fashionable to say, we need to invest for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And that's what size we'll see is. I mean, it's a bet that we're going to make a big bet on this technology, we're gonna maintain it. And this is gonna be the formation and the, the basis on which we can build modern society.
0: I, I guess one of the, the criticisms that might get raised about the nuclear projects and, and size we'll see would, would be no different is that e- even if it's, the perfect solution. It's, it's ten years away before you've, before you've built it. Sure. And so how, how do you, do you just have to hold your hands up and accept that, or is there a way to, to, to bridge the gap?
1: Well, there's no doubt. I mean, the key problems with nuclear now, for years, have been it costs too much and it takes too long and i agree you know and, and us provides uh, case in point the the plant vogel reactor massively over budget and over time end result is going to be the en- ending cost going to be something on the order 20 25 billion dollars an enormous sum of money so for anyone in the utility business and executive that's a bet the company kind of move so you're not going to do this casually but you know what's the what's that old line about when's the best time to plant a tree 10 years ago well the next best time is today so we need to get cracking and we have to get good at building reactors at scale and that was where the french model i think is the one that it should be emulated they said we have one kind of reactor we're going to build a bunch of them and then all of our work people all of our technicians they can go to anyone and they're going to find out the same thing in every different one of them but there, therein lies that one key issue, Andrew, which I think you, we didn't mention, but that's the big drawback for nuclear is that it requires sustained government backing. And that's difficult because regimes change. And we, but we have to have that strength of character, strength of belief in this technology that's going, it's the same problem here in the US. We need the, the liberals and the conservatives to agree and to support it over long-term. It, this is a question that we asked Meredith as
2: well, and I'm very interested in, in hearing your take on it. What needs to be done to change the negative narrative around nuclear? In your book, in your latest book, you made the point that, I think it was the Democrats who have been against nuclear since the 1970s. So it's that's a very long embedded thinking to
1: change and, and go around. Well, I think part of it is going to be getting past these big climate NGOs, right, like the Sierra Club, like the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, Friends of the Earth is big in Europe. Um, These are very powerful and influential organizations that have a lot of reach and they have a lot of supporters who are diehard in their hatred of nuclear. That's a problem. It's not going to be resolved overnight. But as I said before, I think we're seeing a a shift in sentiment around this. I think that the public is starting to understand, no, there is really no way to achieve decarbonization. And the top climate scientists in the world agree, there is no way to achieve decarbonization without lots of nuclear. And so I think that's starting to change, but it's not, you know, as I say, you know, what what's the plan? What's your strategy on this? Pack a lunch. You know, pack a lunch. It's gonna take a while because this sentiment is not going to change overnight. It took us decades to get to this this where we are now. It's gonna take decades to change it. But when when's the time to start now? And that's why I've written repeatedly that President Biden should immediately use the bully pulpit and say he's out in front in favor of nuclear energy. But Unfortunately, he's a Democrat. And as far as I can tell, since he be, has become president, has not mentioned nuclear energy, not once.
2: There was something that you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation. And is, you, you said that the world was not de- decarbonizing, but recarbonizing. And there is the narrative, and then there is reality. And so I would like to hear your thoughts on
1: where coal is heading. Well, coal is not going away. And that's one of the more remarkable developments in the post-COVID era is this massive surge in coal demand and coal prices. Um, As I mentioned earlier, Newcastle marker out of the port in Australia, a ton of coal is at over $400 a ton. And that's a big number. Uh, You know, just 18 months ago, it was less than $100. And I think of memory serves about $50. So this surge in electricity demand has led to a concurrent surge with demand for coal. Let me give you a couple of numbers. In the last few months, China and India announced that together, one is gonna be increasing coal production by 300 million tons, the other by 400 million tons. The net there, the the sum is 700 million tons of increase in coal consumption, 700 million tons increase. Well, you you turn that into CO2 numbers. They're gonna burn all that coal. That's roughly 1.4, 1.5 billion tons of CO2. That's equal to all of the CO2 emission reductions that have been achieved in the United States over the last 15 years. So this idea that, you know, oh, we're gonna lead the world and show the world how to decarbonize, there's no evidence that that is happening. And in fact, these countries are doing what is in their own self-interest. They're gonna burn coal because they know having blackouts is a political problem for the politicians and they don't want that. So they're going to burn more coal. So. Coal continues to hold on to that market share. I think it went up slightly last year. Thirty-six percent of all global electricity is produced with with coal. I think that is going to last for a while. I think there's going to, we're going to see another year of peak coal of record coal demand this year, just as we did last year.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So um, I, I guess we should give you the opportunity. You know, if if you could replace President Biden, I'll, I won't let you comment on whether you think that should happen or not, but. Um, if you were to be in that, that position, what would your kind of five bullet points or what would your your summary policy document look like for, you know, to hit the ground running the first day that you're that you're president?
1: Wow. Well, I, my, I'm tempted to say the first thing I'd do is fire me. Um, <laughs> because I'm the wrong guy. You picked the wrong dude. Find somebody that's qualified. Yeah. Um, You can just be his
0: energy advisor, if you oh, like. Okay, if you well,
1: if I just want to yeah. be this energy czar, well, I, I'll repeat what I've said before. The first thing, and in, in my view, almost the only thing is we have to get serious about nuclear, and we have to do it right damn now. We need sustained effort and investment and regulatory reform that will allow a robust nuclear sector it, not just in the U.S. but around the world, immediately begin coordinating with the International Atomic Energy Agency and other agencies to roll out a new technologies, new and, and deploy at scale gigawatts and terawatts of nuclear reactors around the world immediately, and not not just yesterday not, it, now. And we have to get serious about it now. And the other, I think, is that it's the other is obvious is that. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration has continually uh, demonized the oil and gas industry. You can demonize it if it makes you happy, but we have to recognize the national security and economic security implications, or the importance, rather, the national security, economic security of the oil and gas industry. And we cannot demonize it in this way. We have to get rational about this. You don't have to like ExxonMobil or Chevron, but oil is the economy. The global economy runs on oil. And that is not going to change in anything like the near term. So first, reform nuclear. Second, quit criminalizing or demonizing the uh, oil and gas industry. Third, get serious about supply chains. We've made ourselves too vulnerable to imports of of the critical commodities needed for alternative energy technologies. We're way too dependent on China for neodymium iron boron magnets, for cobalt, for lithium, for all of these so-called green metals, green technology commodities china is the one that controls into the, the global market for nearly all of them we need to get serious about then producing those things in our in the us so nuclear decriminalize in fact promote i would say oil and gas reform mining in, and allow more mining and production of the critical commodities needed for alternative technologies uh fourth i'd say We have to get serious about pipelines and transmission capacity. Uh, We've been uh, stymieing the the expansion of pipelines, which is then decreasing energy security and harming affordability, particularly in the Northeastern US. And then number five, geez, you put me on the spot here, Andrew. What would I say? We need a humanist approach. And maybe this should be the first one actually, is that energy realism is energy humanism. We need to get past this idea that we're just gonna use less or that people in the developing world don't need energy. That's just wrong. If, you're, if, you're, if you believe in humans, if you're pro-human, if you're, an energy, if you're a humanist, you have to be pro-energy. And, I, and that to me is more of a philosophical issue, but it's one that's critical to this debate because the public has been misinformed and uninformed about energy and power systems. We need more rationality. We need more science. We need more physics. But in, in, with that, we need to understand the essentiality of energy in our lives and, to, and that without it, we're, you know, energy means life. Lab sense of energy means death. It's that simple. Would you recommend
2: as part of your advice to stop or delay the big push into electric vehicles
1: and have something more of a push into hybrids i've been a long time critic of the uh, the electric vehicle market you know elon musk has made billions to, you know what 200 billion whatever it is his empire is largely built on subsidies i mean let's be clear you know electric vehicles my my line is electric vehicles are the next big thing and they always will be They've been in the marketplace for over 100 years. I can point you to an article 111 years ago in the New York Times where they said the, you know, the EV has long been recognized as the ideal technology because it's more economical, la, la, la. Okay, fine. That's 111 years ago. Last year in the United States, the EVs had 3.7% of the new car market. In 100 years, they captured less than 4% of the new car market. And who's buying them? The Benz and Beamer crowd. You know, this This is not the, the average working man. These aren't carpenters and bricklayers who are buying Teslas, it's rich people. The household income, average household income for an EV buyer in the United States is $140,000 a year. That's twice the national average. So uh, you asked the question, I'll answer it. This hype around EVs has got to stop. I mean, it's just ridiculous. If rich people want to buy it, go ahead and buy it, but don't make me subsidize your car. That's wrong. Second, I, I, I put it this way. Uh, hybrids are are going to are, are robust and they're here to stay. I think the hybrid technology is really remarkable and that's going to continue to grow. But I just don't believe in anything that in electric and vehicles that have a plug. I just don't. I, I continue to question that because of the fragility of the grid and the lack of recharging infrastructure. And I don't think that, you know, building more recharging infrastructure is a good use of public dollars. If people want to let that vehicle, let them buy it.
2: I think it's quite interesting your point about humanizing because I heard in one of your podcasts, one of your guests was discussing this debate between how Mother Earth had become this religious thing and Mm. had taken center of the stage and attention and then all of the rest came second.
1: Yeah. Well, it's this, you know, there is a religious element to all of this one. You know, there is this idea as the United States, and I think it's the same, same thing in Europe, the populations become more secular, right? There are fewer churchgoers, right? Particularly among the people on the left, right? There, and that's kind of one of the big differences, right? One of the great divides in America, and I think around the world, is between the secular, you know, secular voters and the ones who are religious. But for the secular voters, they the religiosity isn't necessarily Christianity. But when you look at the phrasing and you look at the terminology they use and uh, this idea of carbon credits. Well, Martin Luther would be very familiar with this idea of carbon credits and absolution, right? You know, <laughs> Oh, I can fly to Bali, but if I only buy carbon credits for my airplane flight, then it doesn't really matter. I mean, this is an indulgence. So there is a certain amount of religiosity to all of this that I think is critical to understand that there is a entrenched belief system around this preservation of earth right we've done wrong to the earth and now we're going to you know get in right communion with earth by quitting hydrocarbons and particularly nuclear because that's too much technology i mean there is this this smacks of this idea around technology that it can even be traced back to the you know to genesis and the idea of adam abiding from the apple of knowledge well Yeah, he bit from the apple of knowledge because God wanted humans to prosper and use technology to better themselves. So this idea that we should all go backward in time, it's just a very dangerous and anti-human stance. 40 acres and a mule, I get that whole sentiment, but that 40 acres and a mule and living on the farm stinks. Nobody wants to do that. They wanna live in, in comfort in the city. So we have to get past this romantic notion around healing the earth and going back in time. No, the old days sucked. We need we need modernity. We need energy. We need technology. That's humanism, and we have to have more energy if we're going to be real humanists. That has been fantastic, Robert Bryce. Thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective Podcast. Well, I'm pleased to be invited. I'm flattered to be invited. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Juan. Uh, happy to do it.